Hey there, welcome back to the Christopher Gabonetta show, Christopher Prez, and tonight we're going to listen to Mystical Mathematics of Pythagoras, which means I am the serpent, by the way. Sangaya, get your own subscription, it's only 12 bucks a month for the best programming in the universe.
Although vegetarianism was encouraged, meat-eating was allowed, although minimally. Pythagoras believed that when you ate meat, it clouded your judgment. He also taught his followers that friendship was the truest and most perfect of relationships. There were two types of studies he offered, esoteric and exoteric. Exoteric instruction related to general ethical teachings, while esoteric constituted Pythagoras's core directives and knowledge that he picked up in Egypt. Pythagoras called his students Jambalicus, or his companions and friends, much like those in secret societies today. The school conducted rigorous scrutiny rituals in order to discover character flaws and also required an oath as preparation in its secret teachings. Most interestingly, if a companion of the order decided to return to the world, the other disciples held a funeral for them and left a monument to their memory, for that person was considered dead to them. Nevertheless, before he created his school, Pythagoras traveled extensively. Oddly enough, it all started in his youth when he traveled with his father, who was a gem merchant. This early experience would eventually pay dividends for the young man. Once his family settled down on the island of Samos, Pythagoras began his studies. He first studied with the philosopher Pherecydes, followed by a stint with the astronomer Thales when he was just 18 years old. Thales recommended that Pythagoras travel to Egypt to learn more of these esoteric subjects and the mysteries. Pythagoras was first initiated into the mysteries of Tyre and Byblos before arriving in Egypt, but upon his arrival, he soon discovered that the Egyptian mystery schools would not admit him unless he completed a 40-day fast. This is similar to what we are told in the Bible that Jesus experienced in the desert. This is a well-known spiritual purification practice, which, according to the French esotericist Eliphas Levi, should only be performed once every 50 years. So after performing this 40-day fast, he was allowed to enter the school at Diopolis. Pythagoras was said to have stated, You are not allowing Pythagoras in. I am a different man. I am reborn. You were right and I was wrong because then my whole standpoint was intellectual. Through this purification, my center of being has changed. Before this training, I could only understand through the intellect, through the head. Now I can feel. Now truth is not a concept to me, but a life. After this experience, Pythagoras spent the next 22 years perfecting his crafts in mathematics, music, astronomy, magic, and the Egyptian and Babylonian mysteries. Most interestingly, Pythagoras became a prisoner when Cambyses II, the king of Persia, attacked Egypt. As a detainee in Babylon, he took the opportunity to study from the Magi and was initiated into the Chaldean mysteries. After leaving Babylon, he eventually made his way through Persia to India, where he resumed his education under the Brahmins. It is said that he went to India as a student, but left the country as Pitar Guru and as Yavanacharya, the Ionian teacher. Sadly, because of his travels, 
Pythagoras did not return home until he was 56 years of age, and upon his arrival, he discovered that his island home was in ruin with its temples and schools closed due to the oppression of the Persian captors of the day. Realizing he was not welcomed, he left and went to Italy. Incredibly, the people were so impressed with him and his knowledge, they soon decided to build him a school which served as a school of philosophy and science. This school was modeled around the mystery schools of Egypt. As we mentioned earlier, his followers lived a strict disciplinary life in accordance with the great mystery schools during that time. And there were three levels of initiation, just like many of our ancient initiatory rites. In fact, many secret societies credit Pythagoras for starting their order. According to Albert Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, when we go back to the time of the 16th century king of Henry VIII and his six wives, we learn that he was trying to get a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon, because she couldn't produce for him a male heir. Instead, he wanted to marry the young, pretty, and intelligent Anne Boleyn. But no matter what he tried, even with the help of Cardinal Wolsey, the Catholic Church kept telling him no due to political reasons of the day that involved her family. So he decided to get a divorce from the church instead with the help of a lawyer named Thomas Cromwell. This incident became very famously known as the English Reformation. At that time, he sent out a man named John Leyland, who would go to all the Catholic monasteries and decide what books they wanted to keep before they burned the places down. That is when he stumbled on a very interesting and old book entitled, What Are the Origins of Freemasonry? And when you opened up the pages of this dusty old manuscript, it said inside that their order was founded by Peter Gowler, the Grecian. In other words, this is an anglicization of Pythagoras. Pythagoras taught that the Earth was a sphere at the center of the universe, and that the moon was inclined to the Earth's equator. Furthermore, he was one of the first to discover that Venus was perceived as an evening star, and then a planet as the morning star. He employed music in his instruction. He called it the music of the spheres. And this was replicated by the use of an instrument called a monochord. He was also the first to call the heavens a universe and the earth round. Pythagoras taught and firmly believed that number one, at its deepest level, reality is mathematical in nature. Number two, that philosophy can be used for spiritual purification. And number three, that the soul can rise to union with the divine. Number four, that certain symbols have a mystical significance. And number five, all members of the order should observe strict loyalty and secrecy. But of course, he believed in and taught the principles of immortality which include an understanding that the soul is immortal, which means it changes from body to body and reincarnations, inevitably something he learned from his travels to India, Babylon, and Egypt. Also, Pythagoras openly discussed how he lived numerous past lives, one of which was being the son of Hermes, who is named Athelides. As the story goes, 
Hermes promised Thales, or Pythagoras, any gift he desired, and he chose to remember everything after death, which was granted to him. Pythagoras also believed that anyone who could remember their past lives was a highly advanced soul. Consequently, Pythagoras recalled all of his previous lives thereafter, like the time when he saw a war shield on the wall and remembered his life as Euphorbus. In this life, he was a soldier who fought in the Trojan War. When asked to offer proof of his previous existences, he told his disciples to pull the shield down and look for the name he previously mentioned. Pythagoras cried profusely while his students stood in amazement. It is clear from the teachings of Pythagoras that he was completely familiar with the principles of Asiatic and Occidental esotericism. In truth, he traveled and studied with many of the ancient mystery cultures of the day, including the Jewish philosophers, who we are told instructed him in the rabbinical secret traditions of Moses. Some people even believe he was a disciple of Zoroaster. And although accounts of his travels differ significantly, Historians, for the most part, agree that he visited many countries and studied at the feet of many great masters. There are, of course, many legends about Pythagoras. One of the biggest is, perhaps, his own immortalism. Many people maintain that he was no mortal man. In fact, they thought of him as one of the gods who had taken on a human body to enable him to come into this world to instruct us. In fact, Pythagoras was one of the numerous sages and saviors of antiquity for whom an immaculate conception is asserted. In his Anacalypsis, Godfrey Higgins writes, The first striking circumstance in which the history of Pythagoras agrees with the history of Jesus is that they were natives of nearly the same country, the former being born in Sidon, the latter at Bethlehem, both in Syria. He goes on to say, the father of Pythagoras, as well as the father of Jesus, was prophetically informed that his wife should bring forth a son who should be a benefactor to mankind. They were both born when their mothers were from home on journeys, Joseph and his wife having gone up to Bethlehem to be taxed, and the father of Pythagoras having traveled from Samos, his residence to Sidon about his mercantile concerns. Unfortunately, not everyone appreciated Pythagoras or his teachings. Sadly, one of his students became very disgruntled at him after he was rejected as a student, so that man spread false rumors about Pythagoras and turned a mob against him, and so they murdered him and his followers and burned his school and all their buildings to the ground. As you can see, there are similarities here between Pythagoras and Jesus. Not only did he have disciples, but he was also known by the same name titles such as the Son of God and was crucified in a similar way. This has caused many scholars to assume that perhaps the story of Jesus might partially be based on the life of Pythagoras. Many occultists in the ancient world had astonishing insight into the principles of evolution. They fully accepted that all life is existing in various stages of growth and becoming. Like that of the grains of sand, which are in the course of becoming human in consciousness, but not necessarily in form. In a like manner, human creatures were in the process of becoming planets, and that 
planets were in the processes of becoming solar systems, and that solar systems were in the processes of becoming cosmic chains, and so on and so forth. Correspondingly, one of the stages between the solar system and the cosmic chain was called the zodiac. Hence, it was taught that at a certain time, a solar system breaks up into a zodiac. Likewise, the house of the zodiac became the thrones for the 12 celestial hierarchies, or, as certain of the ancients stated, the 10 divine orders. Even so, know that the first 10 numbers were of particular significance. Together, these numbers formed the tetractus, a triangular figure consisting of 10 points arranged in four rows, one, two, three, and four points in each row. This was also an image of the formed and the eternal realms. I have discussed the detractus and this subject at length with best-selling Lebanese author and esotericist Karim el Kusa, who wrote the book Pythagoras the Mathemagician. He told me that in the first five numbers, we find a secret path of initiation, which are as follows. We start at one as the divine force of creation in the universe, also known as the great monad, or you could say this is a sexless, omnipresent, all-powerful, supreme force of creation. Then number two, we present this as the dyad. This is the dualistic principle of the created, manifested world, the break of unity, if you will. The role of the initiate is thus to escape the evil deed of the dyad and the illusion of the physical world by embracing number three, the triad. This is just like the Rosicrucian teaching of the triangle, but it is through performing a harmonious balance in this triune nature of mind, body, and spirit. When this successfully transpires, the initiate then consciously enters the realm of number four, the sacred tetrad, where the crucifixion of his four natural elements, air, fire, water, and earth, takes place before ultimately reaching the resurrection of his ethereal being into the sphere of number five, the pentad. This symbol is not only the secret sign that was used by the Pythagoreans to identify themselves to each other, but it also symbolized a reconciliation and concord. It was later symbolized by Leonardo da Vinci in his Vitruvian Man because it represents the human being with all the elements. The penta is also where you get the pentagram from, or the five-pointed star. Not only is this the pattern that Venus moves in, but I think it's very fascinating that the ancients knew that and they associated it with Venus. But the pentagram also symbolizes the human being because it has all of the elements in it with spirit facing up. Then when you move clockwise, we have water, fire, earth and air on its other points. I do want to add that in occult traditions, this symbol has been used for protection, banishing and invocations when drawn upright from various corners. However, some associate this symbol with negative uses when it has been inverted, as not only do some groups superimpose a bafflement or a goat-like devil's head over it, 
But another way of interpreting the inverted pentagram is that you're replacing spirit descending downwards and putting all the earthly or material elements first by this configuration. We also find the inverted pentagram and these principles demonstrated in the devil card in the tarot, as often you see that this symbol is above a man and a woman who are chained to all the earthly and material trappings. But aside from the five numbers, according to Pythagoras, let us continue on to six, which was the first perfect number, representing a state of health and balance. Seven represents virginity, as it cannot be divided by any other number other than itself. It brings order to nature. Eight is associated with safety and steadfastness, balancing and regulating everything in the universe. Nine brings things to fruition. Number 10, Pythagoras taught that 10 or the Deca is the greatest of all numbers, for it holds the universe together and manifests all the laws of nature. It is also represented by the Roman numeral X, which is a cross, meaning that we graduate from the nine months of pregnancy into life when we add another number. You see, Pythagoras believed the universe to be an immense monochord, as previously mentioned. He contended that with a single string connected to its upper end existed the absolute spirit, and at its lower end was absolute matter. Strictly speaking, the cord stretched between heaven and earth like that of the silver cord, which, according to the Bible and reports from astral projectors, connects us to our astral selves and physical bodies if we're out of the body. By the same token, Pythagoras contended that when one counts inward from the circumference of the heavens, the universe is divided into nine parts. However, others believe there are to be twelve. In addition, Pythagoras believed in the doctrine of opposites, and that the greatest substances were both material and immaterial, and are numbered, which have two different but complementary facets, like the physical and the abstract, being individualized as dyads, or left and right, or male and female. Unfortunately, because Pythagoras's initiates were sworn to secrecy, and nothing taught was ever written down, most of the inner workings of his numbered philosophy were lost within a few generations after his demise. History has determined that while the early Chinese, Persians, Hindus, Israelites, Egyptians, and Greeks used both vocal and instrumental music in their religious ceremonies, Pythagoras lifted the art to its true grandeur by displaying its mathematical foundations. In truth, he is now praised for his discovery of the seven-note musical scale that we use in Western music. As mentioned previously, he first learned the divine theory of music from the priests of the various mystery schools he had participated in. Yet, not being satisfied, Pythagoras contemplated the laws governing consonance and dissonance for quite a few years as well. He eventually realized that the vibrations made by the hammers were all distinct, but that except for one, they were in ideal harmony. While observing the fourth and fifth octaves, he noticed there was a dissonance between them. After careful observation and study, he found that the tone depended on the weight of the objects. These discoveries eventually led to Pythagoras being able to cure ailments of the soul, mind, and body. 
He used several specifically prepared musical compositions played in the presence of the sufferer with proven outcomes. As a result, based on what we've learned so far, can you see why Pythagoras was considered in such high regard? Indeed, he was a scholar and a philosopher like no other. In fact, other great men merely stand in his shadow. He lived in a time of mystery where the physical body, like all of nature, was considered a marvel of divine interactions. He not only studied it, he lived it. We know he studied at many of the great mystery schools and with the Magi of Babylon, which would make him a magician. Pythagoras was a magician of the highest order, and like all great magicians, he attempted to understand nature. Pythagoras more than likely used herbs from medicine like all magicians did during that period. This practice is as old as time itself. People who were sick would go to a magician who would make a potion made of herbal medicine, much like herbalists do today. Nevertheless, the first important area of the Magi was his ability to read the stars. Yes, we know he studied the heavens, much like Pythagoras learned in his youth and performed and perfected throughout his life. They studied the gods and the stars, two concepts that were inseparable from all of the Magi and Mesopotamian culture. Without a doubt, magic was connected to one or the other, and many times both. We find that magic rituals were often related to the incantation of the gods who were likened to star constellations seen in the night sky, including the planets like the sun and moon. It was actually a matter of faith that the gods had moved from the earth to the heavens and were indistinguishable to certain constellations, planets, or other phenomena in nature. These stars were seen as the intermediaries between the gods and man. They were thought to influence everything, especially when asked for favors. In all actuality, the stars were even used to ward off evil spirits, or were often prayed to as a result. Another skill learned by Pythagoras was plant medicine. As a matter of fact, this practice was widespread in Mesopotamia as well. They had access to a long list of plants, which gave the names of the plants and how they were to be primed, and what illnesses they were to be used for, and in what way. Plants could be dispensed as is or chopped, ground, used as a potion with beer or oil, and as a poultice. Pythagoras was not only an astronomer, a mathematician, a philosopher, a student of the mystery schools from that time period, but he was also a Babylonian magician. And although Pythagoras's life came to an unfortunate end, we have him to thank for the work of Proclus, Euclid's geometry, or Plato, who gave us the Platonic solids, and all the great Neoplatonic thinkers like Plotinus. Pythagoras was the first one ever to call himself a philosopher, and we will forever remember him as a great master who shared his enlightenment and wisdom with the world. I'm Johnny Enoch, and thanks for watching Mystery Teachings.
mystery teachings. To the ancient peoples, the sun was seen as a powerful giver of life and was often depicted in different forms on enormous temples and churches. Our ancestors weren't so much sun worshippers, but they understood that this golden orb in the sky helped grow their crops and kept the wild animals away that lurked in the night. The Persian magi, or ancient magicians, would often carry around metal mirrors with them to reflect the symbols of God's creative powers in nature. They understood that if we wanted to see the invisible, first we had to use the illusory world as the key to unlock these hidden realities. In other words, they understood the macrocosmic perspective of the sun and its cycles as an archetypical representation for universal light and truths. Just as the old axiom teaches us, as above, so below, you might find that a hill of ants in your backyard is just as much organized and industrious as the largest cities on Earth. If you look close enough into someone's eyes, you can see galaxies swirling around inside their corneas. Much in the same way that our bodies are made from the atoms of exploded stars. These minute particles come from around the Milky Way galaxy and travel here along interstellar winds, proving that everything is connected. And because nature was a reflection of the divine, our ancestors would serenade the sun with beautiful poems and songs like the Mazdean hymns to the sun from the Zoroastrians or Akhenaten's hymn to the Aten. Whenever Jordan Maxwell and I are visiting Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, we have a tradition of standing in front of the Egyptian statue out front and reading its beautiful poem out loud. Thou, sun, who has covered the truth with thy golden disc, do thou remove the veil, so that I may see the truth within thee, and know the meaning of the rays of glory. For the truth which is within thee is within me, and I am that. The ancient Egyptians had many traditions involving sun gods, as Isis, who is also the moon, gave birth to Horus, the falcon that rises into the sky. These solar mysteries have even been passed down into the English language as the sun rises on the horizon, or the Horus has risen. This is also where we get hours from, or Horuses, because Horus takes 12 steps across the sky, just like the 12 hours during the daytime. Another sun god from ancient Egypt was Amun, as in Amun-Ra, whose name translates to be kept secret or hidden away. This is why all three major Abrahamic religions say Amen at the end of their prayers, as it does not mean make it so, as some incorrectly believe, but rather is more correctly translated to make what is hidden known to the divine. Other solar trinities we find include the Trimurti of Hinduism with Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, or the Egyptian with Osiris, Isis, Horus. This is the same as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the mind, body, and spirit. These are really just all different aspects of the solar deity with the morning sun, midday sun, and evening sun. We find this three-layered symbolism in Greco-Roman and Gothic architecture as well, using the triptych archway as an initiation doorway. This is a popular design on old governmental buildings and churches like Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland. 
In my travels, I have found countless sun disks and wheels on churches all over the place, especially when we examine St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. The reason that kings and queens were appointed crown is because it resembles the coronas of the sun. This is also why they carried a scepter with an orb at the end of it. This is because they are mimicking the sun or the supreme ruler of the kingdom of heaven. That makes our sun, the ruler of our solar system, and the planets and all of nature are its royal court and subjects. We see this on the Statue of Liberty, which says on the bottom of it that it was a gift from the French Grand Orient Temple Masons to the First Masonic Republic, which was America. Not only is Lady Liberty holding the torch of illumination, but she is crowned with the coronas of the sun. Solar symbolism can be found all throughout the Bible and the mysteries. Take the story of Samson, who had his blondish reddish seven locks of hair cut off to symbolize the rays of the sun. We have the line of the tribe of Judah, Prometheus, or the shark-eyed family in India, whose stories are all about the solar orb entering the sign of Leo, where the sun typically became very hot and it makes it summertime in the northern hemisphere. Every astrological age has a solar messiah seated by the mystery schools. Currently, we are in the age of Pisces, so the sun is symbolized by Jesus, who calls himself the fisher of men, multiplies two fish, and encounters two fishermen. But just like Hercules and his 12 acts of wonder, or Mithra and his 12 helpers, Jesus had 12 disciples, which is the Son or Son of God with his 12 constellations. Since Jesus is the solar messiah of our age, let us explore why his story is important and who he really was and how this solar symbolism became associated with his story. In my travels to England, I was surprised to learn from British historians and religious scholars at Oxford University that the royal family believes they are directly related to the lineage of Jesus and that he comes from a royal bloodline. Even their symbolism of the lion outside of Buckingham Palace or the royal standard flag also relates to the lion of the tribe of Judah, a name that has also been attributed to Jesus, which is a symbol for the sun god or the son of God in Leo. According to the writings of the Greek historian Celsus in 155 CE and the Jewish Talmud, the true identity of Jesus is actually Yeshua ben Pantera, which literally translates to Jesus, son of Panther. And this is who the Vatican and the royal historians truly believe Jesus was and how he came from royal bloodlines. This story begins in ancient Rome, where erotic games were very common during those times. There was a Roman soldier named Panther, who later became an important ruler known as Tiberius Caesar. As the story goes, he had his way with a woman he found attractive, who we later call Mary, which is an Egyptian title for Isis, associated with the mother goddess. Not only did Panther impregnate Mary, but she gave birth to twins for him, one being Jesus, and the other was Judas, or Thomas. And by the way, Thomas also means twin. In those days, a Roman official could not claim a child born with a commoner, but he had lots of reason to brag to his friends privately about it, since it was considered good luck by the gods if he had twins. 
When we go back to the story of Mary and Joseph, we have to examine Joseph a little closer as his last name was Pandera, as in Panther. We are also told that he was a wealthy carpenter, otherwise known as an artificer, a craftsman or mason, and he had taken on the duties of raising Jesus. We are told in the Proto-Evangelium of James that Joseph was around 90 at the time when he steps into the picture to help Mary, which is why he never laid with her. Manly P. Hall writes in The Secret Teachings of All Ages, Godfrey Higgins has discovered two references, one in the Midrash Johalath and the other in the Abodazara, these early Jewish commentaries on the scriptures, to the effect that the surname of Joseph's family was Panther, for in both of these works it is stated that a man was healed in the name of Jesus Ben Panther. The name Panther establishes a direct connection between Jesus and Bacchus, who is nursed by panthers, and is sometimes depicted riding either on one of these animals or in a chariot drawn by them. The skin of the panther was also sacred in certain of the Egyptian initiatory ceremonials. Similar to the life of Sir Francis Bacon, who was born Francis Tudor, the bastard son of Elizabeth I, the son of Panther was adopted and raised privately with a great education and opportunities. The historical Jesus was in fact born to a royal family of Roman lineage and was given great opportunities. The story of Jesus, taught by modern-day Christianity, is one of the most ancient and important ones ever told, as it is greatly allegorical and draws from Mithraism, which was a popular religion in those days around Rome. We find this in the ancient imperial sun cults, which were common during those times, and this is the reason why the Roman soldiers had those sun flares on the top of their helmets. One very important secret about the Bible is that the New Testament is far older than the Old Testament, and it is filled with allegorical stories about astrotheology. For example, according to Manly P. Hall, the book of John existed centuries before the alleged birth of Jesus, and all the references referring to the universal mind were replaced by Jesus. The book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse according to St. John, is not only the Atlantis story, but it is actually an ancient book belonging to the Phrygians and is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest books in the entire Bible. For this reason, much of the writings about the life of Jesus in the New Testament are allegorical, and even the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about the four seasons of the sun. There is another version of the story of the life of Jesus that is different than the solar messiah, that's filled with arcane teachings and wisdom that we find in the Gnostic Gospels, the Pistis Sophia and the books of the Savior. Please keep in mind that many of these books were destroyed in the early stages of Christendom with the Council of Nicaea and the Ecumenical Council. Churches today draw mainly from the Gospels and Epistles, which were added fragments from the Anti-Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers. And since we know that the writings of Flavius Josephus were forgeries, in the Apocryphal Gospels we find numerous details about his actual life that probably happened. In the Gospel of Thomas, we learn that while growing up in the house of Joseph, Jesus was in fact born with the ability to focus and concentrate great energy and could perform miracles like molding sparrows out of clay that came to life and flew away. In the Arabic scriptures, it describes Jesus as being an astronomer. In the Talmud, we learn that Jesus would have visited Alexandria, Egypt, 
which by the way is where we get the connections to the Nag Hammadi, Coptic Christians, and those areas of Christianity. Of course, there are also many similarities we find between Jesus and Horus. The ancient teachings tell us that Jesus was brought to Alexandria by Rabbi Yahshua ben Barakai. In Egypt, he was said to have studied the occult and metaphysics at the Hermetic College of Ptolemies before returning to Syria. After Syria, it is greatly believed that he would have traveled eastward to be initiated into the mysteries of India. Alexandria was a very liberal place back then, being sort of like a Las Vegas, and it became the melting pot of Hellenistic and Asiatic cultures. The mystery deepens further when we examine the writings of the French mystic and writer Edouard Chouret, who hypothesizes that a historical Jesus could have been a member of an Essene sect, which is a messianic group that taught carpentry, alchemy, and occult practices, otherwise known as a secret society. They would have possibly been originally founded by Pythagoras and based on the teachings of ancient Egypt. His theory is based on the concept that Jesus the Nazarene could have been mistranslated from Jesus of the Nazarites. This could explain why Jesus was considered to be someone of great importance by the Romans, so he was venerated by the mystery schools. But where these stories differ is that according to the Gnostics, Jesus never died, and he went on to live a full life, but in the mainstream version, why are we told that he died on a cross? That is because the Son of God is always crucified on the cross, which is a very ancient symbol and comes from the Egyptian Ankh. It is also a proto-Hindu symbol. As Paracelsius points out, the cross has always been used to show the sun divided up perfectly into the four quarters of the year. One of the greatest examples we get for this is with the Celtic cross, as we can clearly see the four parts of the circle with lines going through it. Another interesting connection we get between Jesus and the other solar messiahs that came before him are the titles he shares with Dionysus or Bacchus, the lord of the vineyards. It was often said that the sun made grapes grow on the vines so he could turn water to wine. This is why we celebrate communion in churches by drinking wine for the blood of Bacchus, which later became the blood of Jesus. Another clue we get about Christianity being seated by the mystery schools is that traditionally we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas or Christ Mass around December 25th. But in the Bible, it says that Jesus was born when the shepherds were minding their flocks in the fields. And if you think about it, it would be too cold outside at Christmas time for there to be any shepherds out there. It says in the book of Luke that Jesus was born six months from John the Baptist, which according to scholars would be approximately at the end of September. So why then are all the solar gods born around the winter solstice? Let's take a moment to examine this very ancient and beautiful story. Our story begins with the sun, our risen savior, the light of the world, as it is closest to the northern hemisphere in the constellation of Leo, the Lion King, or during the summertime. Then 90 days or 90 degrees later, he's born into this world from Virgo, the Virgin, who's holding wheat in her hand. So we call this constellation the House of Bread, or another name for it is Bethlehem. 
the star in the east preceding his birth is Sirius, and the three stars are the wise men that align around Orion to point to the sunrise. After he is born and does his life ministry, he is later betrayed by Judas with a kiss, which we call the backbite of the scorpion in the constellation of Scorpio. Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, but these are really the 30 degrees that Scorpio moves in. He then faces the great scales of justice from Libra, where the state, and Sagittarius, which is the mob, wants to persecute him. At the Last Supper, he drinks from a cup, which some have called the Holy Grail, and this is really the Crater constellation. We see this illustrated in the famous painting for the Last Supper by the great master Leonardo da Vinci with the 12 signs of the zodiac split into four groups of three for the triune nature of the sun in its various seasons of the year, you know, like winter, spring, summer, and fall. And to the left of Jesus, which we are told traditionally is supposed to be John, is actually a female. This represents Virgo the Virgin. When we look closer at this picture, notice the son of God, or the sun god, Jesus. In the middle, he has two fish on his plate, representing Pisces. Check out the trinity of the sun again, with the three doors behind him. There is a lot more going on in this picture, if you know what to look for. After that, Jesus is crucified with a crown of thorns, or the coronas of the sun from December 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, which means the sun stays at the same degree for three days before being resurrected and coming back to life on the 25th, when the sun starts moving back towards the direction of the northern hemisphere, when he springs back to life at Easter. The winter solstice story has also been encoded into our megalithic sites around the world. One of my favorite solstice sites to visit in the world is the Newgrange Monument out in Ireland, which is an enormous stone structure built around 3800 BCE or 5000 years ago. When you visit this site, there is a sun portal above the door that has a cross or a crux shaped chamber inside, which keep this in mind, it was built thousands of years before Christianity and it has a solstice alignment that lights up inside only for the week of the winter solstice from December 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It's a big deal to attend this every year, and people come from all over the world to witness this event. These type of sun portals and solstice alignments can be found everywhere, including at Karnak in Egypt and Chichen Itza in Mexico. If that is not evidence of a global dissemination of cultures and sciences that has existed for thousands of years, I don't know what is. According to Manly P. Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, this myth of the dying god originally came from Atlantis. It also serves as part of the initiatic rites of the mystery schools, as it is symbolic of the transitioning out of the lower shadow of the false self and being raised to the higher sphere above us, or we could call that being enlightened. I'm reminded of a beautiful initiatory passageway for the neophyte from the Golden Dawn that was lovingly preserved by Dr. Israel Rigardi that goes, Inheritor of a dying world, we call thee to the living beauty. Wanderer in the wild darkness, we call thee to the gentle light. Long hast thou dwelt in darkness, 
Quit the night and seek the day. In my conversations with author and esotericist Jay Widener, he revealed to me that sometime in the early 90s, he met with a wealthy, high-ranking mason from Europe that allowed him to have access to a private library full of rare and expensive esoteric books. The only rule was that he could only read them and was not allowed to take any of them home. It was there that he learned about a ritual in French Freemasonry that is very interesting. Apparently, the initiate is placed in a completely dark room for three days by his brothers and told to lie down inside of a light, tight coffin. The brothers would then take the coffin out to a hill with a view of the east. They do this right before the sunrise. The initiate, who is also blindfolded, is taken out of the coffin and is now facing the east. As the first lip of the sun makes its way over the horizon, the blindfold is taken off the initiate, exposing him to the first light in days. For the entire time of the sunrise, until the bottom of the sun has left the horizon, the initiate absorbs the early morning light. The initiate is then blindfolded and placed back in the coffin and taken back into the dark room. The initiate then spends the next 40 days completely in the darkness, just like the Jesus fast in the Bible, which involves a period of 40 days and 40 nights. Subsequently, this ritual promises long life for the initiate. According to Jay Widener, what is likely going on here is that this ritual is designed to create as much melatonin as possible in the brain. We know that melatonin is a life extender. By going into the dark for three days, the initiate creates a large amount of melatonin in their body. Of course, the pineal gland secretes two hormones, melatonin in the dark and serotonin in the light. Serotonin is also closely connected to NNDMT or dimethyltryptamine, the most powerful hallucinogenic drug on the planet. As the initiate views the sunrise, all of the melatonin that was created over the three days of darkness is instantly converted to serotonin. At that point, the initiate has to be helped up by his brothers because the six or seven minutes of viewing the rising sun is creating so much serotonin that it becomes an overwhelming experience. By placing the initiate back inside the dark chamber, this blinding dose of serotonin is then converted back to melatonin. But now, the melatonin is almost a super melatonin. According to the latest scientific research, melatonin is also what causes our body to reverse the aging process. I suspect that these solar initiations came from ancient Egypt originally, and they probably used an empty sarcophagus in Karnak or some place where the sun would align during a solstice period. We learned about a similar initiation with the death of the Egyptian god of the underworld, Osiris, who is murdered by his brother Set, who cuts him into 42 pieces and takes his phallus off. His blood then trickles down into the ground where the sprig of an evergreen, a tamarisk or an acacia grows, and this is symbolic of everlasting life. He is then brought back to life after three days when Isis reattaches his phallus, mounts him, and gives birth to Horus, the morning sun. We find this story with the death of Attis, who became Adonis from the Phrygians, and in the Masonic allegories with Hiram Abiff, who was accosted by three ruffians and buried at the brow of Mount Moriah. This scene is reenacted by the initiates of Freemasonry. This is also what happens to Jesus in the Bible as he dies for three days and comes back to life after Mary Magdalene visits the sepulchre. 
The Bible calls the evergreen that sprouts up a Jesse tree, and this is actually where the tradition of the Christmas tree comes from. The sun's power and light has been understood in countless different ways by secret societies. Today we talk about solar eruptions and CMEs, but many of our geologists believe that when we go back to the Younger Dryas Cataclysm around 12,800 years ago, this may have been started by a series of asteroids and solar eruptions causing a destruction on the Earth, including heating up the sand in the Libyan desert, causing it to turn to glass. In many of the megalithic sites I've explored around the world with Brian Forrester, like Tanis and Egypt, it looks like the whole place has been scorched so badly with a hot plasma that it blew the place to pieces. Even the stone has been burnt very badly with a type of vitrification. No agriculture will actually grow on that site, despite being in a rich agricultural area with farming communities nearby. The Egyptians have a story that's very relevant to the solar mysteries and the cycles of our sun personified into the goddess Hathor. As the story goes, Ra grows older and the Egyptians no longer respect him. So he asked Hathor to banish the Egyptians who are no longer grateful for all he does in their lives. But she refuses because she loved the ancient Egyptians so much. So he cast a spell on her to change her into the lioness goddess Sekhmet. She gets angry with a furious response and starts hunting down humans and scorching the earth like a CME or a solar flare eruption. After that, Ra felt bad and he wanted Sekhmet to stop, but she wouldn't listen. So he creates two shadows and these are portrayed by two lakes of wine which, as the story goes, she drinks, falls asleep, and becomes Hathor again. But to subdue her after, he gives her a necklace, which is made from gold, silver, and precious jewels, which may in fact be our atmosphere and solar systems with its various planets, telling us that the sun has now come to a more calm or stable state. Egyptologist Muhammad Ibrahim tells me that he thinks these two lakes represent the layer of shade in the sky that was created after our last mini ice age and helped humans survive during cooler times. According to mystical traditions, the true color of the sun is blue and the orange-yellow color we see is just a reflection of its rays through the substance of our 3D world. Esoteric teachings suggest that there are actually three suns, the spiritual sun, the intellectual sun, or solar as an S-O-U-L sun, and the material sun. Traditionally, this is symbolized in Masonic lodges by the lighting of three candles. It is also taught in esoteric traditions that there are intelligent beings living in the sun and they have various hierarchies and come and go through that big fiery ball of gas in the sky. Maybe this is where we get the idea of our sun acting as a portal for higher beings. These teachings were later adapted into the idea of archangels or spirits of the light who have beautiful golden white colors and are powerful beings assigned to oversee the progress of our solar system. One thing is for certain, the sun has played an important role in almost every major religion and tradition in the world. If we learn anything from these teachings, it's that no matter how dark it might get in our lives or the world, the sun will rise again. I'm Johnny Enoch.
and thanks for watching Mystery Teachings. He considered them vain and overly dogmatic in their lifestyle and instructions. As a result, he simply proclaimed himself as a seeker after knowledge, not the possessor of it. This new way of thinking took everyone by surprise. He was simply a lover of wisdom and willingly shared it with anyone who joined his school. In order to become a member of his order, disciples had to wear the simplest kinds of clothing. They also had to surrender all individual property upon arrival. This was followed by living three years in poverty, and they had to adhere to rigorous silence. Likewise, although vegetarianism was encouraged, meat-eating was allowed, although minimally. Pythagoras believed that when you ate meat, it clouded your judgment. He also taught his followers that friendship was the truest and most perfect of relationships. There were two types of studies he offered, esoteric and exoteric. Exoteric instruction related to general ethical teachings, while esoteric constituted Pythagoras' core directives and knowledge that he picked up in Egypt. Pythagoras called his students Jambalicus, or his companions and friends, much like those in secret societies today. The school conducted rigorous scrutiny rituals in order to discover character flaws and also required an oath as preparation in its secret teachings. Most interestingly, if a companion of the order decided to return to the world, the other disciples held a funeral for them and left a monument to their memory, for that person was considered dead to them. Nevertheless, before he created his school, Pythagoras traveled extensively. Oddly enough, it all started in his youth when he traveled with his father, who was a gem merchant. This early experience would eventually pay dividends for the young man. Once his family settled down on the island of Samos, Pythagoras began his studies. He first studied with the philosopher Pherecydes, followed by a stint with the astronomer Thales when he was just 18 years old. Thales recommended that Pythagoras travel to Egypt to learn more of these esoteric subjects and the mysteries. Pythagoras was first initiated into the mysteries of Tyre and Byblos before arriving in Egypt, but upon his arrival he soon discovered that the Egyptian mystery schools would not admit him unless he completed a 40-day fast. This is similar to what we are told in the Bible that Jesus experienced in the desert. This is a well-known spiritual purification practice, which, according to the French esotericist Eliphas Levi, should only be performed once every 50 years. So after performing this 40-day fast, he was allowed to enter the school at Diopolis. Pythagoras was said to have stated, You are not allowing Pythagoras in. I am a different man. I am reborn. You were right. And I was wrong because then my whole standpoint was intellectual. Through this purification, my center of being has changed.
Before this training, I could only understand through the intellect, through the head. Now I can feel. Now truth is not a concept to me, but a life. After this experience, Pythagoras spent the next 22 years perfecting his crafts in mathematics, music, astronomy, magic, and the Egyptian and Babylonian mysteries. Most interestingly, Pythagoras became a prisoner when Cambyses II, the king of Persia, attacked Egypt. As a detainee in Babylon, he took the opportunity 